Hello, I'm James Chan. You're listening to the China Current. This week, we're going to revisit our interview with Professor Sharon Lewin. You heard the first part last week, where she talked about her family life, how she came into the physical sciences, and the work she's done since then to apply that skill to humanity. She is one of the world's leading infectious diseases expert, known in particular for her work on AIDS and also in the search for an AIDS cure. This week, we're going to focus more. On her work beyond that, and also the vision and insights that it's given her, she travels extensively in her various roles at the International AIDS Society, where she's part of the Cure Initiative with Dr. Mark Dybald, who was President Bush's AIDS ambassador as head. Of PEPFAR. So in this interview, she builds on what we spoke about last week. Remember, you can also go to our videos to look at two snippets of a different conversation on where China and Africa are meeting in the global health space, as well as Professor Lewin's wider work on HIV and AIDS and the response that she is designing for the future and also for now. How close are we to identifying the cure? I think we're still a fair way away, and as we work in this area longer,、um, I've come to realise this is going to well not it, this is going to be a very difficult path. Something we really need to do,、um, and there have been great advances in HIV over the last three decades that we thought would be impossible. Um, so the investment in research needs to continue, but I still think we're a long way off that being introduced into the clinic. Another area which I find so fascinating about your work is、uh, your relationship with the NIH, and that your laboratory, as we said, is one of the very few to benefit from U.S. government funding.、Um, how has it been working amongst a group of pioneering scientists? The NIH have been incredible in the amount of money that they've invested in the HIV response. A huge,、um, very significant proportion of the annual U.S. research budget goes towards HIV, and the approach has always been to get the best science and the best people to work on the toughest problems. And so, I've been really fortunate to be part of a large group of investigators、um, uh, funded by the NIH. Based out of San Francisco, but involving many investigators across the U.S. and, and、um, in Sydney and in Melbourne, and it's a really、um, effective group that work very well together.、Um, and I think tackling tough problems needs big, diverse groups to work together. We, we call it now team science is really the way that science is done. It's no longer the Lone、um, scientists at the bench. Actually, interestingly, when Peter Doherty,、um, the work that he won the Nobel Prize for was done in Australian National University in Canberra in the 1970s, and his two seminal and, and the two seminal papers were、um, his work he had done with Ralph Zinkenagel, who was a Swiss scientist doing his PhD in Australia. And the first paper was Doherty and Zinkenagel, and the second paper was Zinkenagel and Doherty, and that's what they won their Nobel Prize for. And now it's kind of unheard of. You, most publications will have 30 people. You know, we work in big teams now. While the、um, science many years ago was、um, was totally different. When you're talking about co-authoring a paper here at the Amsterdam AIDS conference, how many authors were there? 
accredited to that paper, do you think? Oh, and the Lancet HIV, the, the HIV, Lancet HIV Commission was 40 authors. 40 authors. Mm. I was going to say, actually, that your awareness of community is in spite of the image that one continues to have, even though you say that it's evolved a bit from then, of the scientists working in isolation. Is that the case now with these larger team of investigators? Is there an element of still working in your small clusters? Or is it very open? Do you share data? Is it competitive? Do people get resentful? What are the human emotional dynamics in all this mix? Yeah, science is hugely competitive, no doubt about it. Um, getting, uh, and it's not just around um, around money or patents or commercialization it's around the prestige of being the first to discover something therefore it would be in a prestigious journal and and um, cited many times by other scientists and there's enormous pressures to 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 get those sort of publications they often drive promotions and um, work opportunities but I think there's recognition now by both employers and funders that that how you work in teams is also critically important. So I've, um, I am, of course, competitive, all of us are, but I've I've, never seen that side of you. (laughs) But the collaboration is something I enjoy a lot. So yes, we share data very, very, very freely in these networks that that I work with very freely. What do you do for fun? Um, What do I do for fun? I like to travel. When you're not finding the cure. (laughs) I like cooking. Um, I've, been a beneficiary of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've uh, like movies. At skiing. home or in the cinema? Um, in, uh, actually, much more in the cinema than at home. I tend to fall asleep a lot when I watch movies at home. So you'll 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 make a point of it, and yeah, yeah you'll yeah, go on yeah. for me to, <laughs> to to watch a film. Yeah, Minty can't come though. Minty can't come, which is always disappointing. She can watch them at home. What's the last great film that you felt stimulated either your mind or your happiness? The last great film that um, just you know made me happy was um, was Coco, Pixar, set in Mexico City, Mexico in in Day of the Dead, and we'd just been to Mexico at, in Day of the Dead at Oaxaca about six months before, and it just captured did you dress it. up? It captured it beautifully. Well, I didn't get all the makeup and um, but and marigold flowers, and um, it was just stunning. So I enjoy, I really did enjoy that. You travel extensively, not necessarily by choice nor for pleasure, but for the fulfillment of your work as well. You are the new co-lead with Mark Dybel, the United States of Towards a Cure, which is an initiative under the International AIDS Society, and of course you co-chaired the IES International AIDS Conference in Melbourne. Let's start with that then, because my abiding memory of Melbourne was what happened a few days before when MH17, the flight from where we are, Amsterdam, Mm -hmm. ironically, to Kuala Lumpur, was shot down over Ukraine, and the six colleagues that were supposed to be with us in Melbourne, I obviously um, assume were due to change in Kuala Lumpur onto another Malaysia Airlines flight to Melbourne itself. Away from the sadness of which 
I think that will always remain. There is the Yob Lange Institute and the great work they did. I think earlier this morning they had the 1990-90 session and I think tomorrow his surviving children feature in a film oh, right. that's formed by that. Unfortunately, I can't, <coughs> can't go. Yob Lange did amazing work and that's often being credited uh, in his post-legacy as well. How do you keep that alive, especially the valuable science that he helped us understand in relation to HIV and AIDS? Mm, yeah, still really very sad. Um, someone, of course, there were six people that died and 280 on the six people that died on the way to the conference and 280 on the plane. But um, Jörg Langer. Uh, was not just a great scientist, he was really inspirational for the people that worked around him. And he had this, um, he had this way of, of uh, fighting through um, issues that most people would have thought were impossible. So he was credited largely for believing that antiretroviral therapy could be delivered in a low income setting like Africa. And here we are um, in 2018 with um, you know, 21 million people in antiretroviral therapy. So he was—he had this—he—he he was a real visionary, as well as being a really kind and um, very interesting man. So it's kind of really tragic. So it's just sad. It I must think. be completely shocking, though. Mm, yes, and then although um, you know, wonderful that there's the Leope Langer Institute here in Amsterdam, who will be featured really prominently over the conference. I mean, that is a great legacy, but still incredibly sad. We'd rather not that legacy. We'd rather not have it, yeah. yeah. How did it change what evolved at Melbourne in 2014? Yeah, well, as you will know, um, it uh, put an uh, incredibly challenging um, event at the very beginning of the conference. Global event. Global event at the very beginning of this conference that we had all worked for for two years and um, had, had all had had a shared vision of what it would be like and then suddenly you had this event happen. But in many ways it also brought together people in, a, in an extraordinary way. You were of course part of that as um, chairing the opening ceremony which was the first formal event after um, MH17. It was the initial event of course the conference for the first time it brought everyone together. So I, th I think it had a, a, a big effect on the conference, but in the end, maybe a positive one. People felt very connected in a way that you would never have expected from this from this terrible event. Back in the day, and that day wasn't very long ago, 2003, when I covered SARS, that was the first health story I covered, there was a lot of secrecy mm. around what was happening in mainland China. And a lot of concealment of facts but when it was forced open because of the global nature of people traveling yeah. on planes and across borders it opened up a new world of data sharing transparency and also retroactive work on aids which was not very progressive at that time how far has china really changed and not just in that one event but in those 15 years plus since then well, in, in the HIV response, I was really um, amazed at seeing what's happened to new HIV infections in people who inject drugs, for example, in China. So that was probably one of the biggest risk groups in the early parts of the epidemic. And then I think 
What happens in China is once a um, policy is adopted, it's adopted really well. Happens, yeah, right. it just happens. So once that, so when when the decision was made around harm reduction strategies and clean needles and substitution yeah. therapy, and then it gets rolled out, I, we, they presented the data on new HIV infections in people inject drugs, which has just plummeted since that rolled out. So that was great to see. I think a lot of new HIV infections in China are still in men who have sex with men, so probably need a lot more innovation and new strategies there. Um, and I think uh, in many ways uh, China are really you know, keen to reach out and collaborate. So this meeting I was at in Beijing um, was really around cure research, about um, 20 international investigators with uh, about 15 local investigators looking at new ways that we could work together. So there's a lot of science, a lot of money being invested in science, and a lot of great science happening in China, and I think a real desire to collaborate. Made in China, the phrase, especially when we were growing up, has always been associated with cheap plastic, mass-produced, factory-churned-out products, toys, utensils, objects. Mm. And yet it's so different now, isn't mm, it? Mm. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And the scale, again, it's in science, is sort of. Um, uptake of new technologies and investment in those technologies has been extraordinary there. There is the American dream, there is the Chinese dream that the president espouses. I'm sure there's an Australian dream as well, but <laughs> what I want to ask you is what's the Sharon Lewin dream? Oh, um... And it doesn't need to be about the cure, because I know you've got a grip on that already. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, um... I, especially my current role in running an institute that um, is primarily focused on infection immunity, so focused on a whole lot of different infectious diseases. I would really like to see the model of HIV rolled out in our response to um, all, all, all public health crises. So uh, I see that a bit in the hepatitis, um, but we've got a long way to go to still in many other um, of our disease responses. So I the model of HIV, which brings science, um, clinicians, community, policy um, together, has been a very effective model in the response to an extraordinary threat like HIV. But I think we've got other threats um, that we need to manage. And I, I think those prints, my dream is to, you know, to bring that to our response to many other infections. Can we finish with those threats that you just described? It's exactly 100 years since the start of the outbreak of the Spanish influenza, which claimed untold numbers of lives. Have we really moved on from there? Because we see the Spanish flu as a piece of history. And yet today, with Ebola, with SARS being the first major infectious disease of the new century, it seems that nothing really has changed, or has it? Well, if anything, it's got more common. So we see new infectious diseases far more commonly in the last two decades than the previous two decades. And the reasons for that are complex, but are around um, international travel. So the world is a much more connected place. Um, probably around climate change and changes in, in you know, increasing urbanisation. A whole lot of reasons why we see new infectious diseases. And I think with the experience, at least in the last five years, um, an awareness that countries have got to be much better prepared. We don't really know what's around the corner. 
we may see old diseases return or entirely new diseases like you mentioned, SARS or Ebola that had always been in Central Africa and suddenly it's at a scale that we'd never seen in West Africa. And I think, um, so there's this issue about being prepared, being prepared. I think there's also a big issue, especially for high income countries, that this is not a matter of closing your borders and protecting your people. The response has to be around you know, health system strengthening of systems that can't get You've just get... opened up a can of worms oh, here. Really? Just why? Borders, yeah, lines, at a time work. when mm. many countries around the world are experiencing a, a trend of inward thinking, nationalism even. What impact is that going to have on health as a security factor? Yeah, it, it just can't work because um, we would, you know, think about antimicrobial resistance, no matter how good our prescribing patterns might be in Australia or how we use antibiotics. Antimicrobial resistance just travels with people. And so um, the best way to solve, the best approach will be to strengthen many countries in their response. And just looking after your own backyard just, just won't work. We're going to look right there into the camera because for everyone who is listening to this podcast, you can also watch a recording of this conversation with Professor Sharon Lewin. Just go to our website at ChinaUSFocus.com. That's also the handle for our social media platforms. We'd love to hear from you and for you to add your voice to this conversation with one of the world's leading minds who is living a life that impacts so many in humanity, even though they may or may not know it as it is. Sharon Lewin, thank you very much and good luck as you continue to move forward. Thanks a lot, Jay. It's been a pleasure. And that wraps up our interview with Professor Sharon Lewin. If you missed the first part, you can find it on our sites and on social media as well. Like, follow and subscribe us at The China Current. I'm James Chow. Thank you.